Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology, with me, Tiasha Zaitz. In the previous episode, we explored healthcare and the position of doctors in Malaysia. Today, and in the next few episodes, we will stay in the Asia-Pacific region by peeking into Australia, Pakistan, Singapore and more. My guest today is Peter Bursch, creator and host of Talking Health Tech, an Australian podcast and membership community about technology in healthcare. In the past, Pete has been running clinics, software companies, he is still company director at Meta Optima, creating intelligent technology to help doctors detect and treat skin cancer. He is also company director of the Medical Software Industry Association, which represents the software renders of healthcare industry in Australia. So clearly, Pete has a good understanding of tech challenges in healthcare. We talked about the current state of my health record. Why is Australia not a leader in exemplary telehealth solutions? What does it mean that the government plans to dedicate 107 million Australian dollars in digital health infrastructure and more? Enjoy the show and subscribe to the podcast to be notified about the next episode automatically. If you'd like to dig a little bit deeper in the health tech scene in Australia, you can also listen to the past episodes about the country. I added the links to the show notes. Now let's jump to the discussion. Pete, welcome. It's very nice to talk again to someone from Australia. I usually have at least one guest from Australia per year, and it's always super interesting to to hear their perspective on my health record, which for those that might not be familiar with, is basically the system for storing electronic healthcare record across Australia. Currently, 23.3 million people in Australia have my health record. And just to clarify, Australia, close to 26 million people. So there's the, the big majority of people has uh, their own my health record on the platform. And there's been a lot of controversy happening around my health record in the past. First, it was an opt-in system. Then clearly the, the statistics didn't go up in the, in terms of how many people actually applied for that. So it turned into an opt-out system. And then the critique that I actually got last year was that because not all health uh, providers are adjusted or have the connectivity to be able to connect, uh, to the record. In the end, the records are incomplete and the system beca- becomes unjust because it only serves a certain pop- population of people and not the other part of people. So how do you see my health record? What has been progress in the last two years according to your observations? My health record is something that existed for quite a while and there wasn't a great deal of interest from the public in having a central health record for every Australian and and the typical kind of justificational use case, this is 10 years ago, I think, was, hey, 
if you're in an ambulance and you're unconscious, then the paramedic could look at your My Health record and then see what medications you were allergic to. And then that way they could administer it. And people are like, okay, that sounds interesting. But then obviously that relies on a lot of information to be loaded up into the record that relies on the person actually setting it up. And that whole process was a really difficult one from an end user perspective. And it just, once you're actually in the My Health record, this was a ongoing joke that we had within the, the industry. What do you actually do with it? And and I see one blood test perhaps that, that a provider had loaded up six months ago and it's the PDF, but it takes 15 clicks to get into it. It's great. And now I've got the PDF. It's not actually data that's in a field that you could do anything with. And it's okay. That's great. But then it just went under the radar and this is a real kind of missed opportunity. A lot of investment went into my health record. But then at that point where you said that there was the, went from opt-in to opt-out. So it was, everyone was just given a my health record. That was also okay for a while, but then I think there was a lot of media that that then brought up this issue of what's the government going to do with your health information and you should have a have a right to opt out. And so that, that created this big political kind of football that was being thrown around. I think that derailed a lot of the, the conversation, I think, but also brought up some interesting points around data security and privacy, which are all relevant too. So that became an issue and quite a few people opted out of, of having a My Health record. Although that whole sentiment died down a little bit as the dust settled, then I think the next time that My Health record had a real big focus again was obviously around COVID and as vaccines were administered and everyone needed to be able to show proof of a vaccine to be able to go out and do things again. The My Health record was used as the the place of reference for your vaccine certificate. So that's where you see there's been this huge uptick in terms of people using the My Health record because there's actually a reason to use it now. It's your That's where your vaccine certificate is and it's a bit more than clicking on a PDF. You don't open up a little PDF and zoom up to it and all of this. It's actually a nice... It's, a, it's an okay user experience where it gives you a little green tick at the top and you open your app and that's where it is. So I think that's kind of demonstrated that if there's a reason to use it then and it's a decent enough experience, then the thing's going to get used. But it, it, it I, I think the challenge will be for us now actually investing in more use cases that more of the public would actually see benefit and interest in. I don't think every Australian's interested in seeing their routine blood tests or their routine x-rays or, or anything like that. But I think that if there was a way to be able to utilize that as a platform to have your core bits of information, then potentially there's some good use cases. There's a whole other story about incentivizing providers to actually load information up to it, but I'm going to pause there for a second. <laughs> oh, but that just sounded like it's going to become interesting. Just a quick comment there. To me, it's very interesting to listen to uh, presentations about the state of healthcare digitalization across the world, because when you hear that a country, especially in Europe, where you have smaller countries and it's easier to, to have some sort of a national backbone system, and when somebody says that EHRs or personal health care records have been in place for years and some countries really do have a long history of that, that information says very little. When you start digging deeper, you realize that it's exactly the situation as you described. So patients mm. get their PDF, just PDFs from their medical visits there. So very unpractical to, to search information from. And, and again, same challenges, just providers don't put the information on the, on the backbone. Yeah. And, and I think there are some incentives in a way for clinicians to load up information into my health record, but it's, it, it, and, you know, practice management systems 
here in Australia, which are like the, the EMRs for the GP clinics, they have done their best with the infrastructure they've got to be able to allow a one-click upload and all of this. But there's a lot of stuff that it, that it falls back onto the GP to do. And if the GP doesn't get paid appropriately for it, they're not going to do it. And also, if it's reliant on that extra step, so someone, another bit in the workflow that a clinician needs to load something up, of course, from a patient side, you're not going to get a full picture of your health unless you're going to the one clinician all the time who's really diligent and and proactive about loading stuff up into your My Health record, you're only going to get little snippets from it. So there are many providers around, so so technology providers around Australia who are building adjuncts to the My Health record or even just something totally different and siloed, which is is a bit of a a bit of a shame when, like you say, we've got the potential to be able to, like the vision Sounds like at one point was to have this backbone and infrastructure to be able to then build on top of, but there is very rarely any building on top of the My Health record because it's just not seen as a, a good infrastructure to, to build on top of yet. One word that you said is really important, and that's yet. So you yes. think it's going to just develop over time? Because we do have to be fair that on top of the fact that things happen super slowly in healthcare, these things take time for adoption to come in, for improvements to come in, et cetera, et cetera. I'm optimistic, yes, definitely. And I think we have to be. And we think all together, we, like, it's, it's a role that I have seen the Australian Digital Health Agency, which is our agency responsible for everything to do with technology and digital in healthcare and policy and stuff around that and responsible for the My Health Record. There has been a lot of consultation recently with industry and stakeholders, so not just vendors, but clinicians and patients as well about what they want, not only what they want in terms of the information out of My Health Record specifically, but also how healthcare should be delivered. So with telehealth now being covered under the MBS, the Medicare Benefit Scheme here in Australia, so a lot of it is covered under Medicare. Although when you di- it's like everything, it's like when you dig into it, just that's a great kind of leading front line, but then you dig into it just like one layer. It's if you've seen the patient in the past 12 months and if you've done this and blah, 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 blah. So there's always the caveats around it to, which don't make it true telehealth is all available. So I think there's, but we're, we're a step closer and much like with the My Health Record, we've demonstrated that it, it was useful for the the COVID vaccine proof of vaccination. And we did also see other states build their own apps. So here in Australia, we've got different states around the country and I'm based in New South Wales. So we have our own New South Wales app that we use to do your check-ins and do all the other bits and pieces. But then also it's pulling from my health record to show your vaccine certificate too. So yeah, there's little pockets of optimism there. It, it, It took a pandemic to be able to force us down the line of doing something with it. But hopefully now we can use that as inspiration to do something more from. The Australian government is actually investing $107 million dollars, Australian dollars, to modernize uh, the healthcare system in Australia. Uh, a large part of that is uh, supposed to be for technological advancements. So I wonder, since Australia is a large country and we already d- described some of the challenges with healthcare digitalization, can you put this amount of 107 million um, uh, Australian dollars into context for us? What can you actually get for such a large population? What are the expectations from the industry side or just the healthcare provider side? It's a good question, isn't it? And I, I think it's always never enough. It's it's going to be, I think that it's promising to see 
that there's that it's on the radar and that's sometimes all we can ask for sometimes and the devil's going to be in the detail and the execution of it there, there are a lot of commitments that get made that sometimes people get a bit there's a bit of it's okay that's good but let's see what actually happens from all of that we're, we're like in the midst of elections right about now so a lot of promises do get made so sometimes maybe I'm a bit jaded and older now that I, I feel that we'll see but I think in terms of what we really need in Australia is that like like you mentioned geographically it's a very big country but a lot of it in the middle you can't really live in because it's too hot and like dusty and stuff. So the healthcare challenges that we've had and the requirement for telehealth has has existed long before COVID and and in rural and remote Australia they were doing telehealth before it was cool and because it was necessary for healthcare. Some elements of healthcare were covered under Medicare when it comes to telehealth, but only for certain types of psychology services and other and liaising with specialists, but with a GP in the room. I don't think we need more technology per se around. I don't think we need more bits and pieces. I think we need more work on the current infrastructure and the interoperability of all of it to actually then do something meaningful with it. Our secure messaging in Australia. So the way we get results, so x-rays and and pathology results into primary care, our secure messaging capability is, I guess, like other parts of the world, quite archaic, I'm going to say, because it's based on different providers and it's really hard for a clinician to be able to set it all up so they can just get results, which is a really important thing. But don't even try to connect into hospitals and other parts of the healthcare system and and more broadly, like aged care or disability, because as soon as patients start moving across outpatient and hospital and aged or disability, it's it's like everything starts again, or they bring a little bucket of paper with them from one thing to another. So in terms, I don't think we need new apps or new super innovative technology to solve that problem. I think looking at what we've got and start making it all connect together is going to be really important. So that's where I'd want to see some of that money go. And yeah, we need mm-hmm. more of it. Yeah, yeah. It's going to run out at some point. One thing that I keep wondering when it comes to technology is you need to keep updating the software. The subscription models are a thing. New solutions are uh, available yearly, basically, for the unsolved issues. So to to me, that almost sounds as if the costs for just the tech infrastructure and software is just gonna blow up at some point it's it's funny isn't it i've been to i've spoken with different health services and hospital groups around australia and depends where you are there are some that are really keen on partnering with vendors and building in solutions and implementing technology to work behind the scenes yeah bringing in more technology but from a from a end user's perspective from a clinician's or a patient's point of view it doesn't feel like there's more complexity, what technology can we implement to do a lot of this work behind the scenes, whether it's AI to surface potential issues, but before people need to look for it themselves or just being able to triage information or capture data. But I also know of a lot of health services here in Australia that are investing more and more to build their own apps and their own technology themselves. And I find that an interesting approach where there are hospital groups which are almost turning into mini technology companies. As when I know it's like being a health company is very different to being a technology company. And yes, you need, if you're working in health technology, you need an understanding of the clinical space. But I always worry about hospital groups like trying to build their own ecosystem, it it doesn't really bode well for this concept of connecting in with the rest of the ecosystem. And also it's a very different vehicle to drive being a technology company compared to being a um, 
a healthcare company. But that's very much here in Australia. I'd love to know from your side about what if this is resonating in terms of other parts of the world that you've seen as well. Is it a similar story elsewhere outside of Australia? Yeah, I think many things uh, sound very similar. And by the way, talking about similarities uh, among the visible digital health organizations in Australia is the Australian Institute of Digital Health, which is a fairly new organization. It was Heiser before it was. So there was a bit of a merger of the Health Informatics Society of Australia and then other groups. Then it became recently, yes, you're right, recently became the Australian Institute of Digital Health. So yeah, that's in the last couple of years. And that's really then, I, I think they've expanded that it's a community and and body that represents digital health in Australia and beyond, and more recently trying to expand a bit beyond more than just the health informatics side. Part of it goes also to wording. It's different if you say uh, healthcare IT or if you say uh, digital Mm. health. I think that this is just a random thing, but information security doesn't sound interesting. But when you say cybersecurity, everybody's (laughs) like, oh yeah, oh yeah, that's that's something I need to learn. Yeah. You know what, though? It's funny. When you say cybersecurity, people feel like they don't know enough about it or it's too complex or it's like when like you give your grandparents. That, that joke used to be funny before before COVID. Now grandparents know how to use FaceTime and everything, so they, they know technology more than what we do. But I think cybersecurity is something that, that concerns a lot of people, but also there's not enough awareness and, and knowledge about it. So that's something interesting in itself. Yeah, so if we just would try to put it into word, one word, it would be... Passwords, strong passwords, right? <laughs> strong, but hyphenated word of strong passwords. Yes, that's right. That's, yeah, uh, that's, that's a good start to ch- start talking about cybersecurity. The reason I mentioned the Australian Institute of Digital Health is because Australia is currently in the middle of uh, election and the Institute proposed three key things to the federal government that the government should focus on, one, the development of a fully funded national virtual care strategy. The second recommendation is to commit to build a digitally enabled healthcare workforce. So the awareness and the upskilling of the workforce is also important. And then the third um, recommendation is to invest in the infrastructure so we can actually have the 21st century healthcare system. And when I read this, it was like, okay, so this could actually be, you know, a recommendation for any government. Most countries need a better infrastructure. Some countries are already building it. If we look at Europe, there's a few interesting uh, use cases where, for example, the whole region of Catalonia in in Spain uh, went out a strategy about how they want to organize their healthcare. And basically their main requirement and the foundation for the whole thing is going to be the use of open standards. And we also see a lot of those initiatives also in the UK. Germany is doing similar things, but it's infrastructure. It's how are we going to make sure that the workforce knows what exactly they can expect from technology, how not to fear technology and uh, yeah, telemedicine, let's make it a a reality. I would expect that Australia would be an expert in telemedicine just because of the conditions there and the remote areas that you talked about earlier. We need to be and this is something I bang on a lot about is that this is We've got that prime opportunity of really demonstrating globally the, the benefits of, of telemedicine well beyond 
COVID, we've got a lot of space between people who give care and receive care and also communities in that are underrepresented and that need access to healthcare, but also need access to the technology to to be able to do virtual care. So there's when I think of infrastructure, I think of a couple of things here in Australia. There's the whole telecommunications infrastructure because our internet is rubbish. Like it, it, it is absolutely <laughs> trash. And there's, well, I could talk, I could whinge for a lot about how poor the internet is on, on a scale. I forget where we are on the scale globally in terms of internet capability, but it's really low compared to other parts of the world. Um, Then we've got the, just generally the access to the tools to be able to do telehealth in the first place in whether it's for the age and disability space or whether it's in rural and remote Australia, whether it's for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. I think there's a lot more engagement we could be doing with these groups, communities and and, and people who may not have access to some of the basic tools that, that they could then use to, to get quality um, healthcare um, access through telehealth. But then there's also, I, I think there's still a lot to do in terms of how the funding is done within in telehealth and what's covered, how to then go beyond just paying for the bit where the clinician and the patient speak to each other. But why don't we have, you know, a plan for asynchronous telehealth in some way, whether it's through chat being covered under Medicare? Why don't we have more to do with remote monitoring and tools to be able to monitor a patient's vitals and then somehow have funding for that? Because clinicians are doing it, patients are doing it now, and they're just wearing the cost and time because they see the benefits of it, but it's just not on the radar of the the, the Medicare benefit scheme and and what's covered in terms of healthcare. So there's a lot of work to do there, I think. I guess another thing that's, that's common across the world, and that's the complexity of billing that always hinders the speed of adoption of new things. You actually had a an episode on your show with someone who did a PhD in yeah. billing for Medicare, right? Yeah. PhD in Medicare, Margaret, like she'd be stoked that you mentioned her because I think anytime I think of Medicare now, I think of Margaret. So she's done well. I think that when you put your time and effort into doing a PhD into Medicare, you get to be uh, be be referenced there. She put it a lot more eloquent than me. In Medicare, it's it's not, we shouldn't throw the thing away. We shouldn't start again. We're, we should be very grateful for what we've got in terms of the essentially our own universal healthcare system. A lot of people in Australia can be covered for things, but there's a lot of foundational things that need to be fixed. When you had her on the show, I loved how it started the whole discussion. And you said you did a PhD in in billing. Can I ask why? It's a good question, right? It's kind of so, yeah. But I think when you're a, was it she was a nurse and a a lawyer and one of those people who are way too smart for to to be spending time with me so that's that was a really good opportunity to speak with margaret but the i, I always when i ever whenever i speak to guests in the us for example i it still blows my mind in terms of the complexity and the structures and the the cost involved in doing the costing it's just it's just continuing to build this ongoing administrative burden i assume that puts a lot of pressure on everyone in that kind of healthcare setting oh yeah absolutely in may you hosted a summit about health tech. So this is something that goes under your show and it's uh, done for your community, which is a community of healthcare stakeholders in Australia, vendors. What seems to be on top of mind of, of them at the moment? 
Yeah, at our autumn summit. So we do a quarterly virtual summit for our, our members and people who come along too. So it's great to be able to bring a lot of people together there and their panel conversations. So it feels like a podcast on steroids because we've got all the different guests who've come on and community members and, and bouncing ideas. It's not slides and everything. And I love those too at different events, but this is very much about bouncing around ideas and sharing thoughts. So a, a lot of the consistent themes that came out of the session that we had recently around data that, that came up a lot in terms of using data, healthcare data effectively. And I really liked a session which was about the delivering on the promise of digital in healthcare. And so what's it essentially getting to the crux of what's it for? So a lot of the times when we talk about healthcare data, People think about the commercial opportunities that exist around it, whether it's to de-identify it and sell it to pharma companies or whether it's to some other kind of business need. Then you've got the the cohorts of people who look at it as a big opportunity to then build a lot of fancy algorithms and use artificial intelligence and machine learning and deep learning to be able to get some interesting insights out of it. And that goes down a whole nother rabbit hole. But I think in the end... If we're not interested in healthcare data for ultimately better patient outcomes, then I think we're all in it for the wrong reasons. I think that we're, if we can't use healthcare data effectively, what's captured to then be able to provide insights back to clinicians, decision makers, stakeholders to then try and reduce the amount of time that patients stay in a hospital so they can get out and, and live lives longer, that, that we can avoid people coming into hospital in the first place. So I think there was a lot of, at our summit, there was a lot of conversation around how do we get to the point where healthcare data can be used effectively to, in the end, do what we're, we're all here for, which is improve patients' lives. In the past, you were the manager um, of a company providing clinicians a clinical uh, and practice management solution. So you really did a lot of uh, things that helped you understand healthcare a lot. So ap- apart from uh, running this company, you, you also led a dermatology tech company. You were the director of the Medical Software Industry Association, which represents the interest of the medtech industry in Australia. I do wonder how has your view of healthcare and health tech um, developed over time, changed over time? Because now you're doing interviews, you do go a little bit broader from just vendors. It's an interesting question because I... Before all of the health technology side of things, I worked in, call it the healthcare delivery side. So I was running contact centers that delivered healthcare services and I was running bricks and mortar clinics and then had practice managers and medical directors reporting up through to me who were delivering healthcare in a physical clinic. And so in all of those settings, whether it's in healthcare delivery, but also then creating technology for providers... Now, I'm still a company director for the, I'm one of the board members for the Medical Software Industry Association, as you say, representing those software vendors within the medical space in Australia. I'm also still a company director for MetaOptima 2, so very much still involved in the, the creating technology for clinicians side of things. So my view has been pretty consistent all the way through. I always get excited and interested and fascinated by the shiny lights of technology of, hey, that'd be really cool. Like you can put glasses on and see things that fly around you, or you could do, hey, something really clever with data and make it show a cool picture on the screen. But in the end, I always love bringing it back to, okay, so then you've got your GP in suburban Adelaide here in Australia who's seeing a patient and they need to be able to do something, but it's still really hard just to be able to access a previous report that they had from someone else. So how can we use technology to solve that actual problem then and make better health healthcare happen? It's all about the execution side to the need for all stakeholders to uh, understand where they can partner together and solve problems. If you're speaking to 
health informaticians, they talk about the need to engage with clinicians and co-design and build things together. I love it when you see vendors or providers building building solutions together in some way and partnering to to do something bigger than what the two of them alone could have done. So I'm still very strong on the need for more of that. And even that's just in Australia. And I can't wait to see opportunity to do that um, across borders as well. Where do digital health startups come to the picture in Australia? How would you describe the startup scene, the opportunities, the investments, any interesting innovations that are perhaps uh, on your radar? When I, st- when I started the podcast, even this is a couple of years ago, 2018, 2019, it was a, it was pretty hard, and there wasn't wasn't a overly attractive scene to be in the startup digital health scene. In those early episodes, a lot of the things that I would rant on about would be the need for more investment in the space to be able to encourage early stage organisations, whether it's get investment for research and development, or whether it's for these companies to get early angel or seed rounds to start building their organizations because there were there wasn't really the support and infrastructure to do that. Nowadays, we've got some great organizations that have been de- developed out of different funds and stuff, which is things like And Health, then there's MTP Connect and MedTech Actuator and other kind of, and then all these other acceler- like cool accelerators and programs, which are all focused around healthcare and health tech. And some of them were pre-COVID, a lot more of them now were post-COVID and looking at how they can support that health technology space. So right now, it's a really exciting time to be involved in health technology. I, I was at an event over the, I was moderating an event over the weekend, which is for, which is a super cool community, which is the creative careers in medicine community here in Australia, which are clinicians who are looking at expanding from just, they love the patient engagement side, but what else can they do within their career to, to broaden out within healthcare? And so digital is obviously a big space there. One thing that's come out of CCIM is a syndicate, investing syndicate, which is called Medical Angels, which is, uh, I think it's got hundreds or thousands or like a lot of doctors who have funds that they want to invest into health technology because they're in the end, they're the end users of it. But they don't want to be the ones selecting the right ones and they may want to just put in $10,000 or something because that's what they want to do. But then the, the syndicate will then invest in 10 different organizations that, that they've selected as being part of the the syndicate that they invest. And these are early stage digital health companies. So there's all these little pockets of things starting to pop up, which makes it a really exciting opportunity. And everywhere you look now, there are government run programs or grants or um, opportunities, which before, back in my day, uh, it makes me sound old, but a couple of years ago, you had to really dig around and find them and, and discover these things. Right right now, it's a bit more apparent. But how many of those funding projects go beyond just being projects? There's definitely a lot of research. This is one thing too, is that when it comes to the research and development and building the project side and just demonstrating effectively more in the academic or or university side of things, we do a lot of that really well, actually, in terms of whether it's in in the lab, more in the biotech side, but also in the devices and, and to a point software. What happens is a lot of this great talent that we bring up through our universities and schools and everything goes offshore and goes elsewhere because they'll be paid more or they'll be supported more. It's a more innovative environment, whether it's to work in the US or UK or like anywhere in the world or even emerging markets like um, India or even up in, in Israel. Like it's all this exciting opportunity exists because here in Australia, I think it's partly because still there's so much more to do in terms of supporting like 
the execution side. Like I said, there are some great organizations doing this thing, but I think there could be even more support that's given there. But also I think that the healthcare, just generally the healthcare, it comes back to what's actually happening in healthcare because there's still faxes going around. There's still bits of paper everywhere and there's still things that just don't speak, which make it a really hard environment to actually then go from this is a cool concept to this is happening in reality. Mm -hmm. Um, By the way, one thing that was surprising during the COVID pandemic was the whole situation with the supply chain of vaccines to Australia. Mm. We were vaccinated in Europe and you were in your fifth lockdown and still waiting for the (laughs) vaccine. And I just couldn't understand why that was. So maybe you can add a little bit of a comment uh, on that. And this just made me wonder to which extent does the remoteness of Australia also impact the interest of investors from other countries or from Asia to invest? Does it have an impact or no, not really? That's an interesting point. I don't know whether I've got a super intelligent answer to the point of us not having vaccines for a long period of time. There's probably a political answer, but I'm I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. That's usually how that answer gets done is a political answer. However, the the question around the um, appetite or interest in investing in healthcare and technology in Australia is an interesting one because I think you alluded to it at the start too. We've got a good sized population, close to 25 million people, a, overall a good healthcare system. We represent a lot of people, like as a multicultural community, there's different health types represented, but it's representative of what's happening elsewhere in the world too. We've got the same problems of increasing burden of chronic disease, aging population. So the the environment is pretty good to be able to demonstrate the effectiveness of a solution. I think that the challenge that we've got here in Australia, and it goes both ways, is that if you're an Australian health tech company, you could probably get investment early on as to demonstrate the idea, but there's only so many people to receive healthcare or hospitals or clinics that would actually purchase the solution. So it doesn't take long before you go, where else do we look outside of Australia? And and I guess in New Zealand as well, where else do we look to go? And then sometimes I think organizations from out like around the world might look at Australia and say, hey, let's demonstrate it in Australia first as like the test place. And then scale the solution out to other parts of the world, which is a good concept. However, as you probably know as well, even though some healthcare systems can look similar, actually, when you get into the detail and scratch the surface just a little bit, you find out how different they are. So then what ends up happening is you demonstrate the effectiveness of a solution in the Australian market, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be accepted and supported elsewhere in the world too. I think there is a lot of merit in that point around demonstrating a solution in Australia because we've got a controlled, we've got a lot of water around us so you can keep us little contained here and that's our solution there and give it a go. There's, there is this time right now of an interest in supporting the solutions. And I know in Australia, a lot of vendors are always interested in partnering with organizations from outside of our borders because it brings a lot of potential future opportunities as well. You did, I guess, a great introduction into the question of how uh, do providers and vendors from countries outside Australia enter the Australian market. There's several things that make Australia appealing. It's still um, a part of the Commonwealth countries, so mm-hmm. it's English. So what do you see? Do you Are you observing any challenges that vendors from outside are faced with when they try to enter Australia 
or how would you advise them to go around that? I think it's everything you've said is correct in terms of the opportunity that exists. I would recommend on partnering with existing solutions that are here in the country and immersing yourself in the area. I guess that's pretty good advice wherever you go. But I just think of examples where there's been organizations that had some, like from outside of Australia, that had a good amount of funding that kind of just all of a sudden appeared, I assume with the intention of taking over the ecosystem somehow with their practice management system or with their EMR and be like, hey, we're here now and look, we did it in the US and UK or wherever they were, we'll do it in Australia as well. But you got like healthcare, it's a funny thing. You got to get the buy-in from the clinicians, got to get the buy-in from the, if you're in outpatients in the, in the primary health networks and all of the, the, the public infrastructure around it, all of the industry bodies. So without that partnership and the trust and the and the credibility of your capability to do it in Australia i think that you would struggle there are some great industry bodies now like the medical software industry association like i'm a part of but also as you mentioned the australasian institute of digital health a great way to get across what's happening in this space cheap plug for the talking health tech podcast where you can see across what's going on and within this industry because we've got a good community of organizations and people who are keen to partner with organizations from outside as well. So I would recommend starting those conversations and finding little opportunities, the usual thing. It's uh, like demonstrate in a small way, whether it's a pilot or whether it's utilizing an element of a solution. Sometimes you don't have to be the entire thing comes in. It could just be this aspect of what we do could be could be useful in Australia to solve for a problem. But I think that, po- that last point too is really important as well, which is not just bringing technology to another country because it's a good place to do it, but it would solve for a problem that we have. The big problems that we have in Australia are, like we mentioned before, around the accessibility side of just due to the rural and remote nature of the country, but also all of this interoperability issues that, that many organisations face around um, the world too. It's fascinating how much impact do communication and culture have when it comes to adoption of solutions. You always need the buy-in of the end users. And in healthcare, that can be really difficult. I sometimes wonder if to which extent is it impossible basically to break that barrier where somebody would feel that you're just trying to sell them something. And at the same time, sometimes there's this impression that there's a large market potential in a specific area of the world. And you really have to do a lot of research to understand the market that you want to answer, that you want to enter. I think that especially for countries like Africa, there's this um, general assumption that nothing's happening there. You should, you could give so many solutions away. But in fact, mm. there's a lot of innovation happening. There's a lot of smart people there. There's also other reasons why the continent is perhaps not as interesting for investors. And that's because just the buying power is uh, so much lower. But at the same time, there's s- some challenges that are the same as they were or they are in other uh, countries across the world, other continents across the world. And that is that people will just feel that they can build their own software. If solutions are popping up. It's not like that just because the the markets are less developed that they would take a smarter approach to to the whole development so yeah i think that's quite an interesting thing to think about also regardless yeah. of if you're trying to go from australia outside or the other way around yeah and i think as well like for for us in australia when we think about what what we didn't touch on then was regulation or getting 
things certified, whether it's devices or whether it's solutions. For us in Australia, you often go for FDA first because then you get TGA approval off the back of FDA. So if you're FDA approved, then chances are it's just some paperwork to be able to then be uh, TGA approved, which is Therapeutic Goods Australia certified. But then we've got a medical device in Australia. We've got a lot of talk going on at the moment within the industry around regulation of software as a medical device, which I know globally is always an interesting conversation too, where more and more devices that build in AI and, and I guess diagnostic claims and, and other bits and pieces, or even, sorry, software that actually has AI that has a diagnostic claim, there's a lot more regulation required around it too. So I think partnering with the industry bodies and the people that, that deliver it, I don't think that going in with the approach of, hey, there's this big lucrative market and you'll be able to make lots of money coming into Australia really quickly is the right approach because it's just not the right size of market to do that. But it's a great location to be able to demonstrate um, the effectiveness of a solution and then also then leverage off the back of that into other parts of the world too. So that I think going in with the right approach and trying to understand the problem to be solved, then you'd be, we're generally pretty friendly people. So, <laughs> so it Are should you? be good. Are you sure? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I am. But anyway. <laughs> About how things related to interoperability work across the world in other countries. And one one example really stands out for me. So I work in the medication management space for hospitals. And when mm. we talk about medications and how the information about the medications that the patient is taking is following that patient, it's a huge and complex story. So so, for example, in the hospital, you would have dispensing cabinets on the wards. You would have a pharmacy system in the pharmacy. And then you have the prescribing and medication management and administration system. So a lot of different IT systems. Then you have the GP system on the primary care level. And these mm. systems really need to talk to each other. And in order uh, for you to enable them uh, to talk to each other, you have to make integrations and integrations for companies are just a thing of priorities. So they're possible. Yeah. Nobody's going to deny that, but they just don't get done because uh, different companies have different priorities. And in that sense, I think the work that the NHS is doing for mm. the medicines interoperability and shareability is really admirable because they, they're setting standards, they're mandating standards, and they're also talking to, to vendors about their problems. They're talking to healthcare providers to understand their problems and to really design rules that are applicable and useful to all. They're already uh, working on the electronic prescribing service, which is the, the backbone just for the medicines data. And uh, this is just the medicines data is a, a very small part of healthcare, but it's a really hugely important part in healthcare. Last year, I did a, a documentary about medication errors and deaths, deaths related to that and just was exploring what the reasons behind that were. And for example, with the opioid crisis in uh, the US, mm. because there was no or there is no or there's a very low traceability of where the, the patient is getting medications from. It could easily happen that, for example, if a patient came into an emergency room, the doctors or the clinicians that would receive that patient wouldn't really know if that patient was already at other emergency uh, services that day. That's just something that illustrates very well why interoperability of even smaller parts of healthcare are so important when we're talking about how can we better exchange information to provide um, better care. And I think it comes down to the detail too, because we, we have our journey with e-prescribing is still ongoing, but we where we saw 
big change because for quite a while we had kind of elements of e-prescribing where a script could be sent to a pharmacy after after a physician had prescribed it, but then they still had to physically send the bit of paper because that was the requirement. So you still needed the piece, like all these funny rules around, you still need the piece of paper. And only recently we like, again, driven by COVID because it just wasn't physically possible to be able to have bits of paper being posted out, but it was done for quite a while. You were posting them out afterwards to the pharmacy so they could hold on to the really funny things you do just because that's how the system is designed. So I think as when we can start thinking more about what it actually looks like at a practical level and having the engagement directly with the clinicians and the pharmacists and all the different stakeholders who are involved, I think in any healthcare institution, we can actually make some headway. It's uh, it's funny when you mentioned paper in combination to digitization. We so Slovenia actually has quite a good digitized system, and we've had e-prescriptions for a very long time now. They we take them for for granted. E-referrals are usually described as the less good solutions, and I still remember one time when I I was referred by my doctor to just some specialist, and when I got there, they asked me if I if I have the paper slip. Mm. of the electronic <laughs> referral and i was like what what have we done if i have to print some sort of a, yeah. a confirmation note that i actually have that referral but yeah we'll see what happens in europe by the way by 2025 we've got this whole idea about the european health data space so the 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 hope is that by 3 years yeah 25 eu countries should offer at least two electronic uh, cross border health services to uh, patients so patient summaries and e prescriptions mm. and e dispensation so basically if mm. if i'm from slovenia and i travel to spain i can go to the pharmacy there to uh, just uh, pick up my chronic disease management drugs, for example. So that's the hope. But we'll see how far we go. In the end, it's all about standards and how can we go beyond PDFs? Beyond PDFs. I still, it just reminded me of the story when I first registered for my health record. I still remember that I I assume it's not the case anymore. I hope it's not the case, but you got a verification code. And then the notification I got was, we've posted out your verification code for you. So as I was setting up the my health record, then they posted out a six digit code in an envelope to me that I waited a week for to then open up the envelope and then say, okay, I'm going to punch this code into Okay, we've got a bit of room to go here. But I guess I think we've improved since then. But yeah, it's still a lot of work to do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like so funny that one of the really useful things in healthcare are messages. So SMS, reminding patients that they need to go to their appointment tomorrow so you you don't have no-shows. And in many cases, we've got these little things that address huge problems. I think using existing infrastructure, like using the infrastructure that's most accessible to people is the best way, not trying to overcomplicate it and just thinking, meeting people where they are. I think in generally in healthcare, if we can do more of that, that's really effective. But I'd love to get your thought as well, just but before we close out, some of it would be from the other way around. You know, we talked a bit about bringing, like, engaging more with Australia, the Australian health tech industry for organisations from outside of Australia wanting to participate here. What about the other way? If there was uh, more Australian organisations looking to go global, they've demonstrated some effectiveness within their their local setting. What what advice could you give to? Uh, are there different? countries or regions that are more likely to be receptive of someone coming in and participating in the healthcare system? Or what have you seen work effectively? The same as you mentioned. So it's 
the culture is always different. So the best way to go with the solution is to find a local partner that's going mm. to then either work as a partner, either work as a reseller, just because, yeah, you might make the wrong assumptions, have the wrong approach, might not understand what's appropriate in the business sense, what's yeah. the what attitude you should have. Yeah, so just shortly, that's it. Makes sense. Absolutely. Have we covered? I think that's uh, that's all. That's a pretty good, well-rounded conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. We can wrap cool. up. Yeah. How do we wrap up this? Who's? It's hard when you don't know. I've got my normal wrap-up thing, but then you. Let's got, start like, with wishes. Let's wrap up with wishes. Wishes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like, so what do we wish? If there's one thing that you could make happen in healthcare in the next five years, what would it be? I'm going to be selfish and say in Australia to have like a proper interoperable secure messaging system so that a clinician or a patient or a provider could send healthcare data securely on any platform without being subscribed to any particular app or solution and not being contingent on X, Y, and Z, just easy communication of healthcare information across different providers. I My wish, I thought about it a little bit, is not oh. digital at all. And it's, I wish that we could reduce the workforce shortage in healthcare because it causes just so many challenges in terms of access to healthcare. And in the end, it doesn't matter if you have a universal healthcare system, if there's no providers uh, that you can visit, or if the waiting time is too long. In Europe, we, we like to pride ourselves in access to healthcare and our public systems. But then it's horrifying to see the waiting times for certain procedures. And for example, here in, in Slovenia, our system is based on primary care and, you know, primary care physicians being the gatekeepers uh, for secondary care, which is more expensive. And the problem is that politics um, and ministries of health haven't been able to make primary care attractive enough in the last 10 years that we ended up in, in a huge shortage of GPs. And I mm. think it's just like in the capital, there's 14,000 people that just don't have a primary care doctor and they can get one because there's just not enough doctors. And even though the problem here is that the solution isn't to put out more spots for medical students to enroll into a GP specialty. That doesn't work. The spots don't get filled. You have to change the working conditions and make the whole job more attractive if we want to change that. That's just a food for thought when we're thinking about how we can improve the working condition, the conditions and the appeal of medicine and healthcare. Mm. Maybe sometimes we just shouldn't think so much about technology, but also many other things like people getting adequate amount of sleep and not having to work seven night shifts per month just because there's a workforce yeah. shortage. Your answer is heaps better than mine. My, mine was off the cuff, very focused on the tactical technology side. You're absolutely right. If there was one thing to 
to address, I would be very much focused on the people. And and I, I love your point around the answer isn't just opening up more spaces or reducing the bar, like the level of requirement of clinicians and compromising on safety. It's investing in the people and, and building the right culture and infrastructure to be able to allow healthcare providers, the people who are doing the caring, to, to be cared for effectively themselves. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health, a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. If you enjoyed the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast because it really, really helps other listeners interested in digital health find the show as well. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.